0: Welcome to episode 104 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia, and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus.
1: I'm Gabriel, and family physician and associate professor at Rush University.
0: And I'm John Hickner, family
2: physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice.
3: Hi, I'm Henry Barry, another family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. I'd like to give a shout out to my alma mater, who whose sports teams have done pretty well these last couple of weeks. Uh the baseball team just day before yesterday had kind of a tragic end to their season in the regional finals of the NCAA tournament, but the uh, weekend before the women's lacrosse team made it to yet another championship weekend, fourteen national titles, um, and the men's team finished a great season, eighteen and zero with the national championship. So go Terps!
0: Yeah, you you were going to tell us who your alma mater was at some point, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, that was a missing piece of information. Uh, but yeah, it's so a Maryland University of Maryland. Uh, on this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters or poems. You can get all of them by subscribing to Essential Evidence Plus. Uh, check it out at www.essentialevidenceplus.com. Uh, we have over 800 chapters. Uh, we're focused on primary care and thousands of interactive tools to support your practice. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. You can get CME credit from the Illinois Academy. Just go to their uh, IAFP.com website. Click on their education webpage and find our podcast. This week, we're going to discuss new treatment for female stress urinary incontinence, air cleaners for preventing COPD exacerbations in smokers, surgery versus non operative management of Achilles tendon rupture, and whether we can switch among levothyroxine generics. Kate, could you get us started? <clears throat>
1: Not to mention lacrosse statistics. And lacrosse. Maryland. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when you said
0: lacrosse, you knew it had to be like Maryland or Johns Hopkins or one of those <laughs> the Eastern schools. Man.
1: All right, let's talk about female stress, urinary incontinence. Uh, so, this was a study that came straight out of industry. This is an interesting product, but it was a randomized con- controlled trial that compared an at home pelvic floor muscle training guided by either a motion-based, what they described as a digital therapeutic device, I'll tell you more about it in a second, or just standard written and narrated. It was like an app uh, directed instructions to treat stress urinary incontinence. Uh, They also included participants who had stress dominant mixed uh, incontinence, but they had to have, again, stress predominant. So the stress symptoms had to be ranked higher on a standardized scale. They conducted the study completely virtually. So the whole study was done during the COVID-19 pandemic. They did no physical exam with the participants. It was all, again, participants ranked their their symptoms on various stress, urinary incontinence scales. They recruited participants through Facebook and Twitter. TikTok participants were, generally speaking, not old enough or didn't have enough urinary incontinence symptoms to be able to participate. (laughs) They did standard things. They paid them to participate, and they included them over an eight-week study period. There were a little more than 360 women who participated, all of them at least 18. Average age was uh, significantly older, of course. Minimum of at least two SUI incidents over three days is assessed by a bladder diary. That was part of the entry criteria. Um, And what they did was the, the folks in the intervention group They got, they described it as a digital device, which makes it sound like it's a finger thing, but it's actually a vaginal device with digital properties. So they connected it to a smartphone via Bluetooth, and it's essentially a combination of a tiny accelerometer, like a pedometer, the same, same principles that a pedometer works on, but for Kegel exercises. So it detects pelvic floor motion and then provides feedback to the, to the user via, again, a Bluetooth connected smartphone app. So it basically tells you if you're doing your Kegel correctly. So smartphone-based biofeedback using this vaginal device. The control group participants got just some exercise instruction and a a connection to sort of some information online to tell them how to do the Kegel exercises, but without the vaginal device and the smartphone-based biofeedback. They then followed them up for... Uh, a total of eight weeks with, ba- with data collected at baseline, four weeks and eight weeks. And then they, they looked to see who got better faster, who got, who got more better at the end of the, the study. What they found was that uh, the people in both groups did get better, which was good to see. Uh, but people in the intervention group, the people who got the, the little key pedometers, uh, seemed to get better a little bit more. So they had lower scores at the end of the, the study on um, the, the standardized scales. They also found that more participants in the device group reported at least a fifty percent reduction in SUI episodes. Uh, there, the odds ratio there was one point seven, although the confidence interval was one point zero three to two point eight. So, this seems to work. It's not a it, it's not a profound improvement over just standard exercise instructions. Um, it is not covered. It, you can't buy it. You can't get a prescription for it. it costs six hundred and fifty dollars. Although they will let you uh spread those payments out over a series of months 50 bucks a month um not covered by insurance the website is very clear on that and this was absolutely a study done by um by the company that makes these things they're called i actually couldn't tell if they were called leva l e v a or if they were called aiva i capital i e v a from the website uh, but these are are available you can get this little digital vaginal device and connect it to your smartphone and improve your your stress urinary incontinence. Henry, what do you think?
3: Ay, 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 ay. Um, I have probably two broad categories. The first is just a, an observation that this just seems overly elaborate and overly engineered uh, to something that is relatively simple and straightforward. And I'm wondering if it's actually loose, already lost its market. Just in the last month or so, I've seen advertisements on television for underwear that actually will do the Kegel exercises for women. So that's the my first comment the second one is more nerdy and methodologically based so they used a a modified intention to treat analysis that um um may stack the deck in favor so for example they lost uh uh, 21% of the intervention group uh, during those first eight weeks, and then about 14%. So that represents a big dropout rate and potentially a number needed to harm of about 13. And if you look at their numbers in terms of the um, 50% reduction, um, I estimated a number needed to treat of about 11. So for every person who benefited 50%, you had about one who dropped out. So I'm not sure that for 650 50 bucks, that this is really w- worth a lot of the effort. John? I want to know if the underwear
2: works. We'll have to look oh, that oh. up. <laughs> ah.
1: I know oh, that, that was Henry good. was just talking about um, intention to treat or something, but I was yeah. busy Googling uh, <laughs> <laughs> Kegel panties. Um, and it, it seems like they actually work much the same way uh they hmm. it, it's the same kind of biofeedback there's a sensor biofeedback to a smartphone um, okay so so this is the, the the technology appears to be basically the same um the the question is just how how is the is the sensor essentially essentially
0: um yeah uh, I, mean, I think it. it's an interesting idea and yeah. i think 650 is a lot of money for it but um, I guess my my initial concern was the $350 incentive when there's basically recruiting over Facebook. You might, I would have been concerned about people just signing up for the money, whether or not they ever had any symptoms or not, but that would have equally affected both groups, I would think. So anyway, um, that was just a, kind of a, seemed like a lot of money for participating in a study like this.
2: I wonder anyway, how and- the device would do compared to a face-to-face training session <clears throat> in Kegel. So if you had a really good training session, uh, mm-hmm. that might be just as good. I think that would probably be preferable, uh, but this is something that maybe some women could use if they're resistant to everything else, so I wouldn't throw
0: it away yet. Right. So who's got the quiz, you or me, Henry? So why, why don't you take it this time? Okay. So um, there's a, this is a question about cluster headaches. Uh, which statement about cluster headaches is true? They're very common. They don't occur in men or rarely occur in men. Oxygen hyperventilation and triptans are ineffective in terminating attack. And verapamil is a drug of choice in preventing attacks. Stay tuned. Henry, tell us about COPD and air cleaners. So this caught my attention
3: uh, in part because of some recent uh, things on the news about um, natural gas and internal in, in, internal air pollution um, due to nitric oxide. Well, this looks at it from a slightly different perspective. It, it asks the question whether high efficiency air cleaners prevent COPD exacerbations and improve quality of life in former smokers with moderate to severe COPD. What they did was to uh, identify identified 116 former smokers who had moderate to severe COPD and who lived in homes who had the particulate matter that exceeded 10 micrograms per cubic meter. And they randomized the participants, kind of clever, to receive these um, uh, two active filters, one that they could put in their sleeping area and one where they spend most of their time. And they, they all ran the same way. The only difference being that the real air cleaners had the appropriate um, HEPA filters and carbon filters, whereas the sham ones had no filters at all. And they've evaluated the participants over a six month period and over, using the intention to treat what they saw was really no real difference in quality of life. But, um, if you looked at exacerbations, it got a little bit nuanced. The moderate exacerbations, these were the ones that needed systemic steroids, antibiotics, or required an urgent healthcare visit occurred at about 0.4 per six months versus one and a quarter in the sham group. So, So, there was a reduction there, but not necessarily in the more severe exacerbations requiring emergency department or hospitalizations. Now, as you might expect, those who spent more time indoors and those who actually had the machines turned on longer were the ones who had the most benefits. So it's a small study, short-term follow-up that suggests that maybe for some individuals, these these um, special filters um, can at least prevent some of the moderate exacerbations.
0: Yeah, this was interesting, Henry. And um, you know, I think in the pandemic, a lot of folks have purchased HEPA. Uh, clean air cleaners, and I actually bought one for about 150 bucks and put it in my classroom where I teach at the university. And it just sits there and hums in the background. And um, and my friend Mike Wilkes out in California, where they have these fires periodically, and he has asthma. He, You know, they've been using one, and he, it's just been a revelation, I think, for a lot of folks that, wow, my, it's nice to have cleaner air, and uh, whether or not you have COPD. I think you mentioned that the overall health-related quality of life wasn't improved. It's so rare to see a study where it is. It's a very blunt instrument, and you need a huge improvement in quality of life to see a change in some of those, like SF36 scales. But, um, yeah, this is a a, relatively inexpensive intervention that's uh, harmless and and provides, apparently, some benefit. Kate?
1: Yeah, I know in asthma, this has been all over the place. Um, You know, recommendations to improve air quality and and decrease allergens. and it just all over the place. So they initially sort of said it had been widely recommended and then they went back and studied it and it sort of found to not be very effective at, at reducing allergy symptoms and, and allergy scales. Um, and then I think some some of the more recent uh, studies have been done specifically in people with allergies or as been triggered by allergies um, and found, okay, maybe it's more effective and sort of the worse your symptoms, the more likely you were to benefit from it. Um and so I wonder if we're gonna find that, that there are more, you know, more fewer and fewer people are sort of a more specific population for
0: C O P D that um that seem to benefit from it. Yeah, I also wonder I know a lot of the studies that were done initially this were is, quite old, you know, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five years ago. And I just wonder if they were old we're using older technology and we have better HEPA filters yeah, now. It that might could be too, for sure. John, you were gonna say something.
2: Yes, if this is real. The effect size here is pretty similar to daily use of corticosteroids. I've been reviewing the COPD data with with steroids, inhaled steroids, and this is really fairly comparable in terms of reducing exacerbation. So, this this
0: looks promising to me. All right. Get a HEPA filter if you have COPD. Um, Next, I'm going to talk about Achilles tendon rupture. And this was in the New England Journal um, 2022 by Mervold. I wonder if it's any relation to the mad scientist Nathan Mervold. Uh, Non-operative or surgical treatment of acute Achilles tendon rupture. Uh, And this was a randomized trial, uh, non-blinded, because it's hard to blind people to whether or not they got surgery. And, you know, my synopsis begins with the Achilles heel of orthopedic surgery appears to be that whenever surgeons compare one of their favorite procedures to non-operative management, they find that non-operative management is effective for many, if not all, patients. So this was a Norwegian study. They took adults with acute Achilles tendon rupture. They randomized them to open surgical repair, minimally invasive repair, or non-operative management. The non-operative management was with cast and splints only. They had to be casted within three days of injury and surgery had to happen by, uh, within one week of the injury. Uh, the non-operative management involved a below the knee equinus cast for two weeks, followed by six weeks of weight bearing as tolerated and using heel wedges and ankle foot orthoses. They had gradually decreasing plantar flexion with progressive removal of the heel lifts during the six weeks after the cast was removed. The brace was worn day and night for two weeks, but then could be removed at night for weeks two through six. The post-op management of the surgical patients was similar. Groups were, looked the same at baseline, and it was a well-designed study. Again, the, the unavoidable limitation of not being able to mask. At one year, there was no difference in the primary outcome of a change in the Achilles tendon total rupture score compared to baseline pre-injury. There was a 17-point improvement in the non-operative treatment. I'm sorry, a minus 17-point improvement. A smaller negative number, this is weird, a smaller negative number is better. So minus 17 for non-operative, minus 16 for open repair, and minus 15 for minimally invasive surgery. So while numerically better, there was statistically no difference between those groups. Um, The a clinically important difference between groups would have been 8 to 10 points. There was also no difference in the SF-36 that I just talked about for overall quality of life. Uh, Nerve injuries were less common with non-operative management. I think we could have intuited that, 0.6% versus about 3% with open repair and 5% with minimally invasive surgery. So as they try to get less invasive, there's more danger of nicking a nerve, it looks like. Reruptures, on the other hand were more common with non-operative management, about 6% versus 0.6% with surgery. So the number needed to harm there was about 18. Most of those reruptures occurred in the first few months after the surgery. So bottom line, uh, no clear benefit to surgery over non-operative management for adults with acute Achilles tendon rupture the symptomatic improvement is similar. Uh, You're basically trading off risk of a nerve injury for a lower risk of re-rupture by doing uh, the surgical intervention. So John, will the orthopedic surgeons buy this?
2: Uh, Some might. I've had a number of friends rupture their their Achilles tendon, and I haven't seen any of them treated conservatively. So it seems like at least at this point, uh, that doesn't happen very often. Now I'm thinking that with younger athletes, they probably are going to want surgical repair. But with older folks, say in their, say, 60s, um, they might be interested in conservative management. So I'm, I'm hoping that the word gets out. I'm hoping that they will be offering alternatives to surgery in some cases. I'll keep my eye out, but so far I've seen mostly surgical management.
0: Yeah. The average age in this group, by the way, was 40 years, um, and about 75% were men. So it was a range from 18 to 60. Kate?
1: Yeah, I have nothing to say about a sports medicine <laughs> or the beating <peak laughs> surgery study. Oh, not my well, specialty.
0: Well, my uh, our, our friend Alan Shaughnessy found a study that he shared with, with some of us uh, the other day, and it was basically a super large meta-analysis of all studies comparing operative with non-operative management for orthopedic injuries and basically found no benefit, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> essentially overall. And so it's kind um, of what I'm saying. Anytime they actually study it, they find that there are alternatives and we should at least try the alternatives first or strongly consider them. You know, patient preference is part of this for sure. Um, but, you know, we should at least be thinking about these non-operative options, but yeah, when you can, when you're a surgeon, you like to do surgery. Let's face it, I, and that's why well, they became surgeons. Yeah, the anyway, surgeons would comment, actually comment. yeah the
3: surgeons would actually tell you that it's all about patient selection, and so if you do these on athletes, you're likely to have very different outcomes than if you um, apply these to the average individual walking in off the street.
0: Yeah, that that may be the case, and it would be interesting to know what the level of activity was, and if there was any uh, you know impact by level of activity pre and post um, injury. But um, it certainly should be an option. John, you have got the last poem for us.
2: Yes, this is an old topic, but there's some new data now about thyroid medication and whether or not one can switch. Now, I would call this study a mythbuster for sure. I gave this presentation of this particular study at a meeting in Idaho and also in Chicago within the last couple of months. And I was amazed that most of the family physicians in the audience were not aware of the equivalence of Synthroid uh, preparation. So let me give you the study. These researchers used a very large insurance database, and they had nearly 16,000 patients who received generic levothyroxine at a stable dose and had a normal serum TSH for at least three months. So these folks were stable. Now, most of the patients in this database continued on the same preparation, but about 18% switched to another generic preparation so they could compare the switchers and the non-switchers and see if it made any difference in terms of their TSH levels. So they measured TSH levels six weeks to 12 months uh, afterwards, and they were very similar between the switchers and non-switchers. 83% of the patients uh, had equivalent in the non-switchers and 85% in the switching patients. Similarly, about 3.3% of the non-switchers and about 2.5% of the switchers had markedly abnormal levels of TSH. So this supports that different generic preparations of uh, levothyroxine are really equivalent. Now this is, if we go way back in time, we had a previous randomized trial comparing the brand name Synthroid with generics, and they did a crossover trial in those patients and found those medications to be equivalent, the generic versus the Synthroid. And as Henry will point out, I think shortly here, there was a large scandal uh, that came about when it was discovered that this data was actually suppressed by the manufacturer. Uh, So, Kate, you're actually first in the comments, so I'll let you go first, and then we'll uh, see what Henry has to say. Okay,
3: Henry, let's hear it. So, the study that John uh, refers to was published by Dong and colleagues in JAMA in 1997, and reading the letters to the editor following all of this and the commentaries, the manufacturers of Synthroid um, were all over this, as you might imagine. And uh, there are lots of um, sub sort of subserosa uh, accusations of academic impropriety, violation of trade rules and things of that nature, data suppression, um, as well as the traditional values of academic integrity versus profit um, what was interesting is that there was a two-year suppression of these data that were supposedly contractual but and I can't find the reference any longer but having lived through this I think I recall seeing that that these data became um, known only when boots pharmaceutical who was the uh, or the, the originator of this study was sold and that going through file drawers, they found these data and that there were some even accusations that the data were suppressed and the company was being paid to suppress those data. So this is, uh, you know, we talk about methodologic issues, but there are bigger issues that uh, go behind um, why we have to be very cautious about
0: industry-sponsored studies. Yeah, this was one of the first examples of that kind of uh, subterfusion and suppression. And I remember quite a controversy and and quite an eye opener back in 1997 to see that. Any final comments, anyone? Yes.
2: Two other issues came up in our our discussions at these meetings. One was that some people uh, have patients who just refuse to take anything other than desiccated armor thyroid, which is kind of compounded and not uniform. And they swear by it. So they said it's very hard to get patients to change because that's, quote, natural. They don't realize that levothyroxine, as we get it manufactured in pills, is the same thing as what's in your body. The other thing that came up was the issue of timing of the dose. Some people believe that you have to take your levothyroxine in the morning with an empty stomach. It turns out there have been randomized trials showing that that's not true, that you get good levels if you take it in the evening with a meal, without a meal. The point is that you should be consistent in how you take it because the levels do vary a bit if you vary the time at which you take your thyroxine.
0: Yeah, I think Armour Thyroid is only natural if you're a cow. So that. Was- <laughs> <laughs> I remember having, I, and I, at some point I just said, I'm just not prescribing it. I'm sorry. You know, (laughs) find another doctor because it was just too hard to manage. And and it would, the, the, the levels would vary from month to month anyway. So that's a good one and um, very helpful information to us. And hopefully uh, we can stop worrying about those changing shapes of the, the thyroid pills when we get them in the, in the pharmacy. The quiz answer, I guess it's my turn to give it, is the which statement about cluster headaches is true. They're very common. They don't occur in men. Oxygen, hyperventilation, and triptans are ineffective, and verapamil is a drug of choice in preventing attacks. So cluster headaches are pretty rare, 1% of the population. They're, They're more common in men than in women, so A and B are wrong. Uh, Acute attacks are typically pretty severe, they're unilateral, they occur anywhere from every other day, excuse me, up to uh, eight times a day, and last from 15 minutes to three hours. The pain is often associated with autonomic symptoms like tearing and rhinorrhea and congestion, and a feeling of restlessness, probably in part due to the pain. Several therapies are effective in aborting attacks, hyperventilation with oxygen, uh, triptans, steroids, and intranasal lidocaine. Uh, while verapamine is still the drug, verapamil is still the drug of choice in preventing attacks, lithium, topiramate, and galcanezumab, m is the name of this monoclonal, are also effective. So the correct answer is D. verapamil is still the drug of choice in preventing attacks. Um, there was a nice review of this in American Family Physician, which I happened to edit, actually. Um, I remember working with the author on that. They did a nice job reviewing that in American Family Physician. 2022, um, uh, volume 105, page 24. So thank you, everyone. give a shout out to John, by the way. John is editor of
3: the JFP. Both the Journal of Family Practice and the American Family Physician both do very nice evidence summaries nowadays. Thank you. All right.
0: Thanks. Appreciate that. And uh, so thanks, everyone, listening today. Thanks to uh, John, Henry, and Kate for participating. Uh, Again, if you want to get CME credit, IFP.com. Click on their education webpage. Uh, The IFP is accredited by the ACCME to provide the CME to you. They designate this podcast for one half Category 1 credit. So you can get about... 13 credits if you do them all per year, which is, you know, a good little chunk of CME for free. I think it's free. or almost free. Uh, The IFP adheres to the conflict of interest policy, the ACCME. You can read our complete disclosure on the IFP website. Please tell your friends about our podcast, and we will talk to you soon with more primary care updates.